The book of Deuteronomy, the epic conclusion to the Torah, and spoiler alert, Moses is going to die. Now, in order to understand this book, we need to remember the story so far. So Israel has escaped from slavery in Egypt. Then they spend one year at Mount Sinai. This is where they made the covenant with God to obey all of these laws. Then they wander around the desert for 40 years before they make it to the Jordan River, which is right across from the land God promised them. They're ready to go in. This is where the book of Deuteronomy begins. And what this book is really is a speech. Moses gives these final words. It's like a pep talk to the new generation of Israel that's about to go into the land. And the speech, it's broken up into three large sections. So Moses begins the first part of the speech with a somber tone because he's highlighting Israel's rebellion and resistance, which has been going on for the last 40 years. And that sets up the rest of this opening section, which is Moses' challenge to this new generation to be different from their parents and to respond to God's grace with love and obedience. So he reminds them of the Ten Commandments, like the basics of the covenant, and then he gives them this very famous line. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, in Jewish tradition, this is called the Shema, because the first Hebrew word in this line is Shema Yisrael. And this became a very important prayer in Judaism, said twice a day. And it emphasizes the Israelites' exclusive commitment to their God, the one true God who loved them and who rescued them from slavery. Right, because they're about to go into a land where people are worshiping many other gods. And Moses thinks that loyalty to the Lord, their God, is the only way to life. Now, notice these key words in the Shema, listen and love. You're going to find these words all over this opening section of the speech. The word listen in Hebrew means more than just let sound waves come into your ears. It includes the idea of responding to what you hear. So for Israel, this means responding to God's grace by obeying the laws of the covenant. And then listen is always followed by love. Yeah, so love is the true motivation for obeying the laws. Israel won't obey without love, and they don't truly love if they don't obey. So there's this tight connection between loving and listening that runs through the entire book. And so Moses tells them that if they do listen and love, they will fulfill their original calling as the family of Abraham to show all of the nations the wisdom and justice of God and so become a blessing to them. The second big section in Deuteronomy is a large block of laws and commands. And this is where the book gets its name. Deuteronomy means a second law. And it's because many of these laws we've heard before. In fact, in the first line of the book, we're told that Moses is here explaining or clarifying the laws. So he's repeating and expanding on the laws, making them relevant to this new generation. There's laws about how Israel's to worship God, laws about their leadership structure, laws about social justice. And then some more laws about their worship. Now, after all of the laws, Moses warns Israel of the consequences of their obedience or disobedience, or in his words, the blessing or the curse. If they listen and love, they will experience blessing and abundance in the land. And if they don't, there's going to be famine and plagues and they'll be forced off their land into exile. And that brings us to the final section of his speech. Yeah, here Moses says, I set before you today life or death blessing or curse. So choose life. 
But then things get really interesting because after 40 years with these people, Moses knows they're not going to obey. And so he predicts their failure and even their future exile from the promised land. And he focuses on what he thinks is the true source of the problem, that they have hard and selfish hearts. It's as if Israel is incapable of truly loving God in a way that brings about obedience. But this problem isn't unique to Israel. Yeah, in fact, Moses, when he's using this language about blessing and curse, he's tying Israel's story all the way back to all humanity's story from Genesis 1 through 3. So Adam and Eve, they were blessed by God, just like Israel, and given a choice to trust and obey God, like Israel. And then they rebelled and brought a curse on the land, like Moses knows Israel is going to do. And so these stories... They're about Israel's hard heart, but they're actually a window into the universal human condition. But Moses doesn't give up hope entirely. That's right. He says that somehow on the other side of Israel's exile, God promises to transform their heart so that one day they truly can listen and love. In the final chapters, Joshua is appointed as the new leader of Israel. And then Moses takes the entire law code, the one he just predicted Israel would break. That's right. And he puts it into the Ark of the Covenant. And then Moses hikes up to the top of a mountain so we can see the promised land from afar. And then he dies. And that's how the Torah ends. Which is a strange place to end a story. I mean, it's right there at the climax. Will they obey the laws and live faithfully in the land or not? Well, the story does continue right into Joshua, the next book of the Bible. But this is the end of the Torah, and it's been ended here for a reason. The Torah is written for people who are either outside of the land or who are still waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the whole world. And so now as each generation reads the Torah, they find themselves called to hope in what Moses hoped for, a new transformed heart that one day can truly listen and love. So the word of God is living and powerful. May we listen and love. So Moses told the people, these are the commands, decrees, and regulations that your Lord, your God, has commanded me to teach you. You must obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy, and you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord as long as you live. If you obey all his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a good life. If, listen, if you listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey, then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Listen, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house. And on your gates. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and your promises that you give to us through Moses. We praise you and thank you for the goodness that you are.
We ask you, Father, help us to listen and love. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been reading through the first five books of the Old Testament together as we've been going through the Immerse series. It's been quite a journey. And the Israelites themselves have been on quite a journey. They've been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years to this point. And Moses has now led them to the edge of the Promised Land. And during all this time, they've learned still that God's promises still stand, both in times of blessing when they obey God and obey His commands, but also in times where they don't, where they disobey Him and they sin against Him and they disobey His law. And Moses knew that the generation of Israelites that had been led out of Egypt were not going to be allowed to go into the Promised Land. Not even Moses would be among them that would go into this place over the River Jordan into the land that God had promised is flowing with milk and with honey. It was a new generation, a new generation of Israelites that stood on the edge of the Promised Land and were waiting to go in. And in verse 3 of this chapter, the people were reminded of the goodness of God in providing a land again for them that flowed with milk and with honey. And in many ways, Deuteronomy is like a farewell speech that Moses is giving to the people that he has led for so many years. And he's not going to go into the promised land with them, and he's reminding them again of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. He's reminding this new generation of the incredible covenant that God had established with the Israelites. And it's more than a farewell speech. It's really like this awesome pep talk before a ball game. And so, you know, as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, uh, actually yesterday afternoon I was thinking I would have loved to have been in the K-State locker room yesterday morning when K-State's coach Kleiman gave the pep talk. I would have loved to have heard what he said to them before they went out and they upset the Sooners yesterday. And I think there's some themes that are common to really good pep talks. And so what are some of the things that are in a really good pep talk? Well, uh, you remind the team of its purpose and its identity. Uh, you also let them know of what the challenges that they're going to face uh, when they move forward. You remind the team of its history and its preparedness, and kind of what they had been doing to prepare them for this moment. Uh, you remind them of their goals that they had established at the beginning. You encourage belief or faith that they're going to prevail if they stay committed and unified in their purpose as a team. A good uh, pep talk includes passion. You can't give a good pep talk with a monotone voice like this and... Hey team, this is a great opportunity to, you gotta have passion. There's enthusiasm. You gotta believe in what you're about ready to do. And so many of those pep talks have a memorable slogan that the team grabs a hold of and kind of drives them uh, forward in their competition. And I think Deuteronomy has all these things. You know, I remember one of my favorite movies is Remember the Titans. How many people have watched that and liked that movie? It's an awesome movie, right? You know, the movie's not just about a football team, it is, but it's also about this high school that's going through uh, integration, and it's the civil rights movement, and, you know, the high school's finally going to have white and black students together, and the football team kind of becomes the crux of this experiment to see if you can bring whites and blacks together, and if they can find a way to be unified and committed to a purpose. They've got a really good, talented football team, but a lot of conflict and a lot of challenges in front of them. And, and, to, and they've done pretty well up until a certain point in the season, but it's late in the season. They're playing a really good opponent. 
And it seems like the whole world is against this football team. In fact, the coaches now become convinced that even the referees are against them. They're calling penalties that aren't really there, and, uh, and the, the referees don't want to see them succeed. And so the defensive coordinator actually pulls the defensive unit over to the side of the field before they go out for the next series. And he said, okay, this is it. He goes, everybody's against us. He goes, but we're not going to let him get another yard tonight, right? He says, I don't want another player to come across the line of scrimmage. If another player comes across the line of scrimmage, I'm going to pull that player out of the game. In fact, if they keep doing that, I'm going to pull the whole team out of the game. He's like, they're not going to gain another yard tonight. In fact, tonight, they're going to forever remember the night that they played the Titans. And the defense is just like, and they're ready to go out. And they go out and they kill them, right? They win the game. It's this huge deal. Well, this is really what's going on in Deuteronomy. Moses is reminding them of their identity. He's reminding them of their purpose. He's reminding them of their calling. He's reminding them of what God has challenged them to do. He's reminding them of the challenges they're going to face. All this stuff is all through Deuteronomy. All these elements are there. The memorable slogan is found in actually verses 4 and 5 of this passage that was just read. In fact, the passage is so powerful that the Israelites and the Jewish people take this on as their own kind of mantra, their own slogan as the people of God. It's called the Great Shema. And the verse says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This becomes the, the mantra for them for centuries. In fact, there's still Jewish people today that live by this, that carry these, these passages around. And it sets the tone for God's expectations for his people. And therefore, the circumstances that we see in the rest of the entire Old Testament literally are, are due to his people either obeying or disobeying this simple command that he gave to them. So I want us to go back to Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, and look at this passage again. Again, in verse 4, it says, Listen, Israel, listen. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. God's saying, listen to this. Pay attention. This is important. Don't forget this. In the previous chapter, Moses had reminded them of the Ten Commandments that God had given to them. He's reminding it to this new generation as well. In Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 through 9, God tells the people the following. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. You do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's inequity to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. In the Ten Commandments, God explains that he was the one that brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He expected the people to worship and to serve him alone. In the passage that we're looking at now, God is is seeking to help them understand what this means. The people were used to seeing other people, other cultures, other groups of people worship from obligation or fear, other gods or other idols. But to God, worship is about a relationship that's based on trust and love. And so the passage, again, is labeled the Great Shema. The title Shema comes from the verb in the original language that means listen. Listen. Listen to me. Listen. And the command that we're looking at here is literally what Jesus says is the greatest commandment that is in God's Word. God wants His people to listen to what a relationship will look like and what it entails. And God wanted to remind the Israelites that He was the one and the only God 
And that that reason, let alone that reason for not worshiping other idols or wannabe gods, is that there is none other God before him. There is no other God. So why was this so important? Well, they were getting ready to go into this land where people didn't worship the God of Israel. In fact, they worshiped many other gods. They worshiped many other idols. And the Israelites would be challenged to live differently than the people who surrounded them. Nobody else in this time worshiped just one God. The Israelites would have been mocked for trusting in just one God. And, and they would have been mocked because their God, they didn't have an image of their God. So the cultures would have been uh, pressuring them into worshiping the multiple gods of their day. But for Israel, there was only one God. The one and only God demanded their true and total devotion and loyalty. Now, we, live in a certain, we certainly live in a different age and a different culture and a different time, right? But do we? I mean, to me, some of this stuff is so relevant still today. We live in a culture that worships so many other things. So many other small gods. We have so many things that call us to be distracted from worshiping the one and true and only God. Movies, music, entertainment, songs, right? iPads, smartphones, video games, sports, wealth, materialism, all that. Affluence, all those things can become gods to us. But, but most of it doesn't point to the true God, right? If our culture doesn't worship other gods, then we tend to elevate ourselves to be like God, to elevate ourselves in a way much like Adam and Eve uh, elevated themselves in the original sin. The message that we hear in our culture today is that we are the masters of our universe. But that's so, so unbiblical. It's so untrue. People say the Old Testament isn't relevant anymore. But I say that there is a, there's not a more relevant passage today than the one we're looking at right now that calls us to worship and to know the one and only true God. Listen, listen, Christians, listen. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We better listen. We better pay attention. We better focus. The Israelites had a problem. At times they lost focus. They forgot. They didn't pay attention. Um, you know, they, 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 they were challenging that. And they, so they had a problem staying focused. And we, too, can have that same kind of problem, which is why we're encouraged to listen to what God is saying here. They and we have the attention span of what I would relate to a 10-year-old child. Let me explain. When I was 10 years old, there was something that I just was so passionate about. It was my, kind of my main focus when I was 10 years old, and that's playing sports or playing games. And I would literally, from the time school was out in the afternoon until I went to bed at night, there might be a 20, 25-minute window for supper in the middle, but I was playing the whole time, playing games and playing sports and competing with my friends. And not just competing, but I was wanting to win. Like, it was all out. It was all out. I was going to win, right? And so there were times during that period of my life that my mom would have a hard time getting my attention when I was in the middle of those kind of thing, the games and activities with my friends. And I can remember one time when I was about 10 years old, uh, I was with a, a group of friends down in our basement, and we were playing ping pong. And we've been playing ping pong for probably an hour. And, you know, I was going to try to win every game. And it was so intense. And all of a sudden, I heard my mom call from the top of the stairs, Wes, come here, I need to, need to tell you something. And I'm like, Mom, I can hear you while I'm playing ping pong. And she's like, no, no, put your paddle down. Come over here and listen to what I have to say. And I said, oh, okay. So I put ping pong paddle down. And I walk over to the basement. And I look up at my mom. She's telling me something. It sounds like the teacher from uh, Peanuts. Wah, 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 wah. And I'm really... Like looking at my friends playing ping pong, and I'm thinking, I want to get back to there. I want to get back to there. My mom's like, listen, now I need to tell you this. And I'm like, okay. 
And she's like, I want you, I'm going to go away for a little bit. She says, while I'm gone, I need you to feed the cat and let the dog out. At least that's what I thought she said. And I'm watching the game. I'm like, okay, mom, I got it. She goes, did you get that? I go, I got it. She's like, okay, I'll see you later. I said, okay, great. So I'm back at the ping pong game. I'm playing ping pong. About an hour later, I realized, oh, I haven't done what she asked me to do. So I stopped. I said, guys, I got to go help. I got to go do the stuff my mom told me about. So I ran upstairs real fast. I fed the cat. I let the dog out in our fenced-in area in the backyard. And I ran back downstairs and started playing ping pong again. And we played ping pong, ping pong for another hour. My mom got home. I heard her walking around upstairs. And then all of a sudden, at the top of the stairs, at the top of her voice, she yells, Weston Wayne! And I'm in trouble, right? When you hear your full name, you know, that's it. Boy, I'm in big trouble. So I ran upstairs. I was like, I fed the cat. I let the dog out. What's, what's going on? She goes, you didn't listen to me. I told you to feed the dog and let the cat out. She said, the cat had a procedure yesterday at the veterinarian. He, she wasn't supposed to eat food today. I came home. The cat was eating food out of the bowl. I wondered where the dog was. The dog wasn't in the house. And do you remember we have a Labrador that likes to go out in the backyard, and he jumps our five-foot fence. You know what? The dog's not in the backyard either. The dog's gone. And I was in trouble because I didn't listen. I didn't pay attention. I wasn't focused on what was important. And that's what God is doing here for Israel. He's saying, listen. Listen, listen, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is important, Israelites. You need to remember this as you get ready to go into this land where these cultures are worshiping so many other gods. If you become distracted, you're going to have problems. Listen. If we don't listen to verse 4, then our relationship with him never blossoms. Let's look at verse 5. This is the second half of the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We're called to love God with everything. Our relationship with God is not ultimately about keeping rules or fear of retribution, but rather our relationship with Him is centered on love, which leads to devotion, which leads to obedience. But it's not out of obligation. Verse 5 offers us the depth of love that God is seeking from each one of us. And this is the same kind of love we seek from our spouse or from our children or from our parents. You know, a love that matters, a love in a relationship that's important, it needs to be a deep love. And that's what God is seeking. And since God loved Israel, God expects that love in return. God wants a similar, complete love from us. This love is appropriate because He loved us first. He loves us completely. 1 John 4.19 tells us, reminds us that we love Him because He first loved us. What God wants from us more than anything is our love. And we often think that God wants a hundred other things. We think He really wants our time, our money, our effort, our will, our submission, so forth. But what God really wants is our love. When we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and strength, then all those other things we're willing to give to God willingly, without question to Him. If we give God all the rest of those things, money, time, effort, will, and so forth, without loving Him, 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that all could be lost. It all may be worth nothing. God wants our love. Jesus called this the greatest commandment. And he said the second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, was like the first great commandment. So when we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and strength, it becomes easy to love our neighbors as ourselves. And our love for God is, is literally to infiltrate every fiber of our being. God is what we're called to be passionate about. 
This thought leads us to verses 6 and 7. This is what it says. These words that I'm giving to you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. We're called to love God with purpose and with passion. And when you're passionate about something, you live it. You don't even necessarily have to think about it. You just do it. You live it. The law was intended to be internalized, to be memorized, to be made a part of the will of the person. And such obedience was to come from the heart. It was necessary that the law be placed in the heart. There was no external code. This was not supposed to be an external code that was about legalistic uh, following. This was really a way of life that we were supposed to be introduced to, to be internalized. And we're called to be so passionate concerning our devotion to God that we're called to teach our children and our families about God. The encouragement to repeat these words to our children uh, were given to meant to talk to them, to impress upon them the importance of what it means to know and to love God. Over and over again, at every opportunity, we're to tell them about our great God. We must make sure that those within our homes know God and know how to love Him. And when you sit in your house and you walk by the way as the verse goes along, it means that when you're at home or when you're away from home, which includes, of course, all the time, right? I mean, there's no other option when you're at home or when you're away from home. It means at all times you're to do this. This is supposed to be a focus in your life. And he goes on, he says, when you lie down and when you rise up, it's also a way of including the whole day again, right? When either as you begin to wake up from that moment until you go to sleep, the God is supposed to be at the forefront of your mind and in your conversations with your family and your kids. Not only am I to tell my children, but they also need to see this in my life. It's not just words, but it's actions, right? They need to see my love and my faith in God by the way that I treat my wife, Diane, the way that I treat them, the way that I treat others. Love becomes an action. Faithfulness becomes an action. And so through Moses, God instructed these commands to be taught diligently to the children and as well carried outside the home. Literally in every aspect of the community of Israel, they were supposed to be loving God with everything and teaching each other to remember to love God fully. It shows that God's revelation should always be central to our family's structure, so that when we talk about him, even when we're performing daily activities. And then verses 8 and 9, Moses goes on and says, Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. We're called to live out loud the love that we have for God. A simple rendering of these final verses is that of living your love out loud for God. The words of the law were to be continually before the people, deeply embedded in their hearts, and so that the whole community would be constantly reminded of this love commitment that they had made with God. So they also they wrote it in places they would see it. They put it on their doorposts. And then they also would put it on literally the, the signs of the city gate. And so the Jews took a very literal approach to this. In fact, you can see a picture of a here guy a guy here who's taking this literal approach. So the custom was for the Jews to write certain verses on scraps of parchment, especially Exodus 13, Deuteronomy 6, which we're in right now, and Deuteronomy chapter 11, and then place them in these little boxes and put them on your, strap them to your, your arm and strap them to your forehead. And so literally Jews began doing that, and there are still Jews today who wear these little boxes on their arm and on their forehead. This guy right here is, is still doing that. 
It continues today. And I believe God was looking for something more than just this external uh, obedience to what he's saying here. I think he literally meant take it inside. Take it and make it a part of your being. When he's saying write it on your forehand as a symbol on your forehead, it's like literally to take that in to your being. God always wants us to love from the heart, not just from a show. And so some of the people, some people today say that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, but I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think that is true, a true statement. God has always been and always will be the same God. The God of the Old Testament is not a different God than the God of the New Testament. John 3.16 bears that out. My faith, my love for God should be seen by all that I come in contact with. To do that, I have to be all in for God, right? I have to live my life out loud in love for God. And we know that God loves us with an everlasting love. He tells us this in Romans 5, 8. He says, while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us, that Christ died for us. And so God invites us to love him wholeheartedly. This love is not meant to be an obligation, but literally freely given out of our hearts out of the result of joy and gratefulness, not out of obligation. No, our relationship with God is not about keeping rules. It's not about fear of retribution, but rather our relationship with him is centered literally on love, which leads to devotion, which leads to obedience. You know, when I was growing up, my family had some rules that we, my parents expected us to live by. Uh, the parents made most of the rules. Mom and dad wrote or, you know, came up with most of the rules. Every once in a while, my sister and I would come up with a rule, but we'd have to run it by mom and dad. And if they approved, then we could put that rule in play. But we didn't come up with a lot of rules. And so, but those rules, I didn't keep those rules out of obligation. I didn't keep those rules out of fear most of the time. There were a few times I did. But the vast majority of the time, I kept those rules because my parents loved me and I knew that they loved me. Because my parents, I believed that my parents had my best interest at their heart. And I trusted them. They, I found them to be trustworthy. So I didn't question them. And so I kept the rules, usually, uh, because of my love for them and because they loved me. How much more do I want to follow what God has set in place for me and for us? Because I know that God loves us. I know that God is trustworthy, that God is good, and God is faithful. So therefore, why would I not want to keep the rules? Knowing that the rules are in place not to make me feel guilty or obligate me or to make me think I'm a bad person. The rules are in place because the rules are designed to allow me to live and thrive in the way and the design that God had created us and he's created the world to be in. It's when we live within those rules that we experience the fullness and the joy of the life that God gives to us. So we need to live in love, and out of that love with God, then we are devoted to Him, we're loyal to Him, we're obedient to Him, because we know that God is good, God is faithful, God is loving. Life's too short. We need to live in love with God. It's a lifestyle that changes everything. It requires all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. But let's go ahead. Let's dive in. Let's risk it, right? Let's know that God is good. God is at work, and God is a God who loves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that comes to us. We're thankful for the way that you led the Israelites, that you called them as your people and led them to a place, even though they hadn't been obedient to all 
your law and all the rules that you had established. But yet, God, you kept the covenant. You were faithful. Your promises were true. And God, we recognize that this first covenant is a foreshadowing of the greater and better covenant that comes through Christ. The one in whom all can be fulfilled. The one in whom all can be made right. And God, we're so thankful. And God, we receive this invitation. We've received your love for us. And to know, God, that you invite us to love you back. To love you with everything that we have. Every fiber of our being. And God, we recognize, just like the Israelites, God, our love is imperfect. Our love falls short. Our love fails at times. And yet, God, you're patient. You still love us. And you're still working transformation in our lives. God, I pray that you would continue through the power of your Holy Spirit to encourage us to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our strength. Because, God, you, God, are the one and only true God. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.